Hey everybody, and welcome back to part two of my discussion on the dark turn in Civil War history with Sarah Handley Cousins, Jonathan Jones, and Diane Miller Somerville. We keep the conversation going about the changing scholarship and why asking previously unasked questions is so important to the field. And I even give them a chance to respond to some pretty harsh criticism. Now, before we pick up where we left off last time, let me take a sec and ask you to subscribe to this show at theroguehistorian.com and follow me on Twitter at mkeithharris and Instagram at keithharrishistory. Okay, here we go. question, though, um, that, that comes up is that there's clearly a, a gender angle to all of this. I'm wondering if there's also a class angle to this or if these ideas transcend class um, and, you know, uh, uh, people suffering from, you know, physical or psychological disabilities, uh, are they stigmatized regardless of what class uh, to which they belong? Well, I mean, this is the beauty of um, the sources that I looked at, which is the yeah. asylum records. And the vast majority of those uh, people that I looked at were classified as paupers. And they, they so, so you could therefore uh, see that they had experienced some level of a break during the Civil War or after that you can piece together and see that it was um, linked in some way to the Civil War if it wasn't caused. But, but, but the other thing is that it seems that a lot of the reasons given for the paupers have to do with material struggle or um, the fact that they, uh, a couple of the women that I looked at who were hospitalized during the war, right after the war, um, were suffering from overwork, right? Mm -hmm. it, which makes perfect sense because if, menfolk are all going off to the war and they're left alone to do all of the physical labor of maintaining the household but maybe taking care of the farm as well um they are going to be physically taxed so i in in, a, in ways that probably more elite women would not have had to deal with certainly not because they still have enslaved peoples and and um you know um you know they can hire people at the Poor people don't. So I see way I see hints of ways in which their their uh, poverty and their destitution, um, either made worse or caused by the war, actually contributed to their mental stress. Yeah, I found situations like that as well, where um, a couple of really heartbreaking instances where women actually. Um, wives of soldiers who were institutionalized, especially at long-term facilities like St. Elizabeth's in Washington, where a soldier went and usually didn't go home, um, you know, would write to the superintendent and say, I, I heard that you might be letting people out or that you might be thinking about releasing my husband. Please don't send him home. I can't take care of him. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't have the money I, because he's there. You know, I have to work and I'm a laundress and I've already sent my children away. In one letter, a woman is talking about, you know, how she's kind of had to send her children to live with other people because she just can't work and care for them at home at the same time. And then saying, you know, I, I, I don't have the means to also care for my husband. I can't do it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that class certainly does come into it in terms of the pensions as well. Um, 
it's, it's tricky on all sides because as you mentioned, you know, the, the fact that whether you were able to work played a lot into how much of the pension you got. Right. So like that's complicated for, it's complicated even for people who are, you know, I guess of, of greater means who can, you know, maybe work a white collar job because that means that because they're still working, they, they're, they're, the government's not going to want to give them their pension that they earned. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, that's problematic uh, from my perspective. Um, But then there's also, you know, people who are much more on the edge um, who are in really risky, tricky situations where, you know, a pension payout was not going to be enough to get them through all the time. And so they had to work. Um, but they also didn't have the means to hire a pension attorney to help them get a higher pension payout so they wouldn't be able to work. And then when they went to work to to do something to bring in more money, well, then the pension system said, but you're working. You can you can go to work. You're, you know, you're doing day labor on someone's farm. Obviously, you're, you're you know, able to bring in money. You don't need a pension increase, right? So it creates this like really difficult position for people on lots of different levels, at least from what I found. Yeah, and I'll add that I think that this is really one of the areas that I would like to see sort of the dark turn movement go in the future is the, the, the exploring the effects of poverty in survivors of the Civil War's lives. Like the Civil War straight up left millions of people desperately poor and a lot of those people never who were catapult a lot of people who were catapulted into poverty by the war itself were never able to uh, escape that poverty and it had effects for their children um and i think this this is um you know uh, one of the areas that um, people that work with economic data, so like historical economists, I'm not sure what the proper proper term here is, but there are groups of scholars out there that that look at things like census data and Union Army, um, like the, the Union Army Early Indicators Project, for example, that tracks like pairs like pension applications with Army medical exams for like a, a, a large number of people that were Union Army soldiers during the war. And these scholars have been able to determine that, you know, among men who were Uh, disabled during the war by amputations or who contracted chronic diarrhea or like lifelong diseases, they, their poverty became such, so extreme in in some cases that even their children's lives were were affected. Like, you know, children uh, of union veterans who were disabled during the war, for example, had literally shorter lifespans on average than children of veterans who were not catapulted into poverty by the Civil War. So I think that this is, you know, uh, a part of like poverty, the history of, of how the Civil War caused this big crisis of poverty in post-war America, I think is one of the, the ways that the dark turn needs to go, because that's part of the, like, that's like one of the big parts of the story that I think Civil War historians really don't have a good handle on. Um, that's a long spiel to say that this is something that we need more work on, the history of how the, the Civil War left a lot, of, a lot of people and a lot of families desperately poor, and they never overcame that. Yeah, the intergenerational aspect of this, I think, is uh, something that I would like to see more research on as well. I think that's such a good point, Jonathan. Um, and I know that this is a some a, a sort of a trajectory that um, disability history is starting to go in. There's a really incredible article a couple of years ago by Leslie uh, Reagan about um, this sort of thing among Vietnam veterans and, and Vietnam veteran activists 
um, saying, you know, it's not good enough for the government to support just me. They actually, they, they disabled my children when they disabled me because of the after effects of things like Agent Orange um, that veterans believed had led to birth defects in their children. And so obviously we're talking about something quite different among Civil War veterans, but as you mentioned, um, this sort of, I don't know, is, I'm probably getting out of my lane here by saying epigenetics, but I think that this is kind of, you know, this idea of the experiences of one generation sort of having these effects on later generations. Um, and I think that this would be particularly important to try to untangle, if we could, for Black veterans, um, because we know that they um, were much less likely to get pensions. It was much harder for them to get pensions. It was much harder for them to get the same pension payouts as white soldiers. Um, and so this, whatever effect this may have had on white soldiers, which was significant, it would have been even worse for black veterans. Sarah, I'm glad you brought up black veterans because I did want to ask um, how they fit into, into these, all of these scenarios that we've been talking about. One of the things that strikes me is of course, you know, an enslaved black man wouldn't have been, you know, uh, would, wouldn't have been expected to perform the same virtues of manliness, uh, you know, in a Victorian setting as would, uh, you know, uh, a white person. It, you know, they just, they don't, they don't own themselves and, and that, that sort of the powers of the patriarchy, I suppose, wouldn't apply to them. Yes, they find themselves free and in the United States Army. Um, does that change that context? Uh, and then after the fact, if they are left disabled, physically, psychologically, if they are, have, have found themselves addicted uh, to opiates, you know, are there, are there differences uh, based on race in, yeah. in the 19th century? In, in my experience, absolutely. I mean, they were already at a disadvantage and they were already at a disadvantage that, that other scholars have identified. Um, you know, they, many of them, especially freed people, freedmen, didn't have the sort of institutional or bureaucratic knowledge of how to do all the damn paperwork to mm -hmm. get a pension, which is substantial. They didn't have access to the doctors to get the uh, medical exams. You know, they didn't have all of those things that, you know, somebody like Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain could get without a problem, right? But one of the things that I think is really important um, that, that I came across was that mainstream doctors, not even like Southern, you know, you know, sketchy doctors. <laughs> I'm, show, I'm showing my like union bias here, but. Um, sketchy Southern doctors, I can right. see. Right, <laughs> uh, it was just accepted as truth that black bodies were inferior to white bodies physically, right? And so black soldiers there we made a lot of the fact that like this was a, a man making moment right that they could prove their masculinity prove that they were men by taking up arms right this is mm. carol writes about this as well um but we also have to remember that when one of them when a when a black soldier was wounded and was disabled they were kind of understood as even more disabled right they were um they were already at a physical disadvantage because their bodies were understood to be sort of inherently disabled by their blackness. And this is really tricky too, because sometimes there's also the under, there's the belief that black men had sort of the brute strength, 
to do, you know, things like ditch digging and grave digging and things like that. And so it's, it's really complicated the way that this, this worked, but it, what it all comes down to is the fact that when they went to get those pensions, um, even, you know, given all of the other kind of paperwork issues, medical issues, all of that stuff, the bureaucratic issues, then when they kind of submitted their paperwork, the pension bureau was inherently more skeptical that the the ailment that they were presenting that had disabled them was really what was disabling them because they thought that they were already um, inferior physically, right? And so they were less inclined to give them a payout um, that they might have given to a white person that they would assume, well, of course it was the war that did this to them, right? Um, they, they were much more... Um, they believed much more that black bodies were just already sort of disabled as a baseline. Very interesting point. And, and something that I, I'll go ahead and plug a show that I've got coming up in the future with uh, uh, Elliot Bowen, who just wrote his book in search of sexual health, which is a book about syphilis and the treatment of syphilis, which is a really interesting book in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Who so brings up some similar points about, you know, uh, 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 black people who suffered from syphilis were already oh, yeah. at some point, you know, uh, morally inferior uh, right. and physically inferior in a, in a, in a sort of amplified uh, you know, how they were treated as sufferers uh, from, from this disease. Any, any historiographical shift is going to come with its own set of controversial, you know, back and forth. Uh, Diane, you've already brought up a couple of times uh, cr criticisms of the, of the so-called dark turn or what some people have called new revisionism, uh, as I've seen out there. And uh, you mentioned uh, that some people have said that this is an attempt at presentism. Uh, and I've also seen a few people um, mention that this is part of an effort to forward an anti-war political agenda. Uh, and I would like to give all three of you a chance to respond to these, to these accusations. Well, I'll go first. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I, it's rare to see this in print. It, I've seen it maybe once or twice in print. It's more likely, I think, to come up at conferences. Mm. Um, but the, um, issue of, of an anti-war agenda, um, is one that I've never seen play out. Um, I can speak for myself. I talk to other people and I, you know, what makes you interested in this topic it has nothing to do with any kind of, uh, opposition to war or, you know, you know, uh, a lobbying for peace. I mean, although that's a good thing, and I'm happy to be on the side of peace, that didn't motivate me to to to, to tell my story. I was interested in um, a study of suicide that uh, hadn't been told, and I wanted to understand the emotional and psychological impact of war on the individual soldiers and their families. Um, nothing to do with opposing any kind of war in Afghanistan or, um, or, or Iraq. I mean, that, that wasn't even on my, uh, my radar. And so I think that those scholars who do, um, you know, impute that onto scholars who work on um, studies of, of trauma, 
are really misguided because I think we have our own um, scholarly agendas, we have methodological preferences, uh, and those are what guide us. We, you know, questions about uh, the war and its impact, those are the things that drive historians to write about these kinds of dark topics, not, not some political or ideological agenda. Mm -hmm. Sarah, Jonathan, do you have anything to add to that uh, to, 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 as, as, as a response to those accusations? I mean, I think this is tricky because, I mean, like, I am anti-war, right? I mean, like... I don't know many like, pro-war I mean, <laughs> Right? Um, yeah. I don't know, and I don't know how you could do the research that the three of us do and many others do and come out being like, yes, war is awesome. War is great. But at the same time, one of the things that kind of makes me laugh about this criticism is that, like, I study war, right? Like... I, I study the war. Like I enjoy, obviously there's something about warfare that I think is interesting, right? Because I study it. Um, like everyone, well, like many other people who study the Civil War, I study it because I like being like on battlefields. Like I, that's what drew me in. Um, and so sometimes I think that it's kind of, I don't know, it's kind of silly to think that like Civil War historians got into it because we just sort of inherently hate the Civil War, or we want to criticize it, or something along those lines. But I also think that it is relevant to think about the ways that, you know, being a, a, a scholar who, um, you know, was going through college and graduate school during the Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts, I think that that's relevant to my study. I think that it led me to ask different questions. It led me to think about things differently, right? Eric Dean's sort of landmark study on, um, on war trauma, you know, he sort of got there by way of Vietnam, right? By thinking about the experiences of Vietnam veterans. And so I, I, I think that this is true for lots of the histories that we do, right? We are constantly seeing things in our own lives or um, experiences that, that we see sort of playing out in the news and then that encouraging us to ask new questions about the past. I don't see that as presentism. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that we would have the histories that we have today without, you know, people reacting to the experiences that they're having in their lives and then looking to the past, right? Like, I mean, think about the birth of women's history, mm -hmm. right? Women's history is born out of a moment of kind of women's liberation because women were like, wait, where are my histories? You know, and asking that question. I don't think that that means that that's presentist. Um, I certainly asked different questions when I was starting my research because every day when I turned on the television during my comps, I saw commercial for the Wounded Warriors project, right? Um, so I think that we are influenced by these things and I think that that's okay. I, I don't think that that's a bad thing. Now, does that mean that when I went into the sources, I cherry picked so that I would only find the things that adhered to my assumptions about the ways that veterans experienced their post-war lives? No, right? I, I think that that's what people are often insinuating when they say that it's anti-war, right? Is that we are actually shaping the narratives that we're writing to adhere to the, the narratives that we would like to um, push in modern day, 
right? That we have an agenda and we want to use the history to push that agenda. And that's just not the case. In you know, my experience, those histories were there and they were waiting to be told. They were waiting for somebody to ask the right questions. Sorry, that came out as very forceful. <laughs> no, but, 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 but I tend to agree with you. Um, other critics have suggested that you're making far too much of this and that the overwhelming majority of, of, of participants in the Civil War veterans went home and went, you know, got back to their regular lives. I mean, and Jonathan, some of the things that, that you've mentioned, you know, about addiction, things that we did, don't really know all that much about were far more prevalent um, than, than I, I ever imagined. I mean, this is something that when we first spoke, you know, months ago, this, I mean, I knew that it existed, but I didn't know the extent to which it existed. And it really opened my eyes to something that I never really considered all that much before. Um, and so I'm wondering if that's really a, a good way, uh, you know, to, to, I mean, everybody's open for critique. Okay. But I don't know if this is necessarily the right way to critique it just to go, Oh, you're just making too much of it. You know, this is a, uh, you know, these, this is just a handful of people and it really wasn't when you're dealing with 3 million veterans of the war. Well, uh, maybe, maybe two and a half million veterans of the war, uh, that survived the conflict anyway. Um, you know, most everybody just went back to their farms, they went back to their shops, they went back to their positions as clerks, they went back to whatever they did and went on with their lives and, and everything was just fine. Um, do you think that that is a, a criticism that's worth engaging or is it just something, another one of these things that you think, eh, you know, not so much? <laughs> I, go, I go back and forth between uh, thinking that it's worth spending a lot of time engaging with this criticism and just kind of like blowing it off and thinking, oh, why should I bother like dealing with this? Because, you know, right. <laughs> nonsense, right? But, but I'll say two things. Uh, so, so sort of to recap, one of the major, I think, criticisms of the dark turn is that it, you know, quote, universalizes bad experiences that it like, or, or, or I guess maybe a different way to put it is that it overinflates the, the negative effects of the civil wars, the civil war right? That by, you know, studying, you know, writing a whole book on PTSD or a whole book on suicide or, or drug addiction or, or whatever, that um, that is going to, for some, you know, according to this line of, of uh, critique, that that is going to make people who don't know much about the Civil War, like hone in on those so-called dark subjects and think that the, you know, that every Civil War veteran suffered a dark experience. But the thing is, is that that critique assumes that there is such a thing as a normal or typical veteran experience. Like there were millions and millions of people that fought in Civil War armies. There was no such thing as a, a, a universal experience. Certainly some experiences were common to a lot of people, but I, I just completely reject the idea that you can, you can, you know, categorically say that there were normal or typical veterans experiences and atypical veterans experiences. So that's one way that I would respond to that critique. And I would also add, and I've thought a lot about this because I'm actually working on an article about this. So this is sort of like a uh, in the back of my mind right now. Um, there, I think success or what we would call success for Civil War veterans in their post-war lives is complicated. Because like Sarah shows, you know, with her work on, yeah. on JLC, uh, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, um, who in all of my notes is just JLC. So he has like yes. this. <laughs> <laughs> it's so hard to write that over and over and over yes. again, you know. It's, uh, but like, like success for, for him and, you know, people uh, who were non-visibly disabled or who had secret morphine addictions or, you know, who had these really tragic home lives but put on a good face for, for the public, success is complicated. Like a historian might look at somebody like Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain and say, oh, even though he had a, uh, you know, a hard civil war experience, saw lots of combat, got shot, 
he overcame it, right? But in reality, and you know, because of the public face that he put out to the rest of the world, like he tried to project himself as someone who, you know, stayed stoic and, you know, dealt with, with his injuries and, and all that, 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 you know, that, that came from that, like a true man should. He was supposedly, you know, a true soldier of the union, but secretly he was really struggling. Like it, it really deeply, tragically affected his life. And I think the same can be said for a lot of so-called successful civil war veterans. Like in yeah. my own um, work, I tell the story of this guy called John Gulrick, uh, who who is this like actually kind of famous um, lost causer? He was like a, a, a Civil War veteran who, late in the uh, 1900s and in the early 20th century, would travel around Virginia and give these wild like lost cause speeches about like you know you know it, as part of the sectional reconciliation project. And so he was famous as being like this sort of like emblematic like well-adjusted supposedly white. Confederate veteran. And he, you know, you can like Google and find photos of this guy like shaking the hand of Warren G. Harding on the wilderness battlefield. And he's supposedly, again, this sort of emblematically successful guy who survived the Civil War and then overcame it. But in reality, this guy, John Gulrick, was addicted to morphine for like 50 years, right? And it completely obliterated his personal life. But he kept all of that secret as much as he could. So success is in the eye of the beholder, whereas some historians see successful veterans everywhere. Therefore, we like dark turn historians must be making stuff up or overinflating the, the, the extent of the subjects that we're studying. I look at success and say, you know, one can be successful to the outside world, but also a morphine addict. So yeah. I don't know. Yeah, and that's a fantastic point. I mean, it's a really it, important point. Yeah, and bringing up Gulrick especially because I mean we talked about this uh, when we last spoke. I he was a subject in in, in my book as well. And in in what when I when I was reading your work, I went, oh my god, this guy had a morphine addiction. I had no idea. So he he was he was successful in masking that to the rest of the world. I I, I really this it was a complete surprise that he had struggled. Uh, with this. And I also really appreciate your point about, you know, um, and, I, and I've been changing my thinking a lot on this lately, especially in my classes, uh, is this idea that there's a common uh, typical experience. You know, when you're dealing with 3 million people, I mean, there are themes that you can address, I suppose. Um, but, but I'm really beginning to rethink my ideas about whether or not there's such a thing as a common soldier. Um, and, and, and I bring this up in my classes. Can, can, we, can we even really have that kind of conversation anymore, especially with the work that all three of you are contributing uh, here, uh, which is very much, uh, very much appreciated. Um, one last thing I have to ask you, and since we're speaking about engaging with critics, uh, one last thing I, I wanted to talk to all three of you about is you're all active on social media, as am I. Um, and I'm curious how you deal with people who come at this uh, and, and, you know, take, take on the hater uh, you know, uh, position and just come at this and, and, and sling, you know, sling crap at you with, you know, no real evidence or anything like this and just want to like attack you uh, maybe because it's political or, you know, um, you know, these kinds of things had, and, and, and sometimes they bring up stuff. I've seen this happen all the time. When we're talking about using history to promote a political agenda, I see this kind of stuff happening all the time on social media. Uh, you know, people manipulating history, cherry picking history, manipulating certain events to suit a political purpose. You know, my, the most obvious one being, you know, like saying that the Democratic Party of the 1850s it was this, therefore any Democrat today is also this. Uh, that, that's like the really silly way of looking. Um, you know, at, at, at political realignment and various things over the last 150 years. But I'm wondering, uh, to uh, reduce this into a, a more straightforward question, how do you guys deal um, on social media uh, with the folks that, that take that, that assume that position and come after you? Mm. 
<laughs> I don't have um, a whole lot of folks attacking me on social media for uh, my positions, for my scholarship. Um, I get, I've been very fortunate. I get very positive feedback uh, because I hear from uh, veterans. I hear from public historians who give guided tours. I even had somebody reach out to me um, who was, um, I don't know if you saw that movie that was screened, uh, based on the book by Jake Tapper. Um, I think it was called, what was it? Um, I'm, I'm at a loss for it. Was it The Outpost? I can't remember. Yes, yes. Yes. Okay. The Outpost. So um, one of the principals in that is in a PhD program at Duke. And he's working on, he's, a, he's working on an English PhD um, Stony Portis, and he uh, reached out to me and told me about how much he liked my book and how important it was. So I've not had bad experiences. Uh, politics might be a different matter, but in terms <laughs> of my scholarship, um, I'm, I, I get a lot of veterans who reach out to me and, and tell me how important my book is to them personally. And I'm very gratified by that. Yeah, I have to echo what Diane said. Um, in terms of of social media. I don't think that I've ever had someone criticize my work in this sense. Um, and, and to echo something else that Diane said earlier, my biggest um, experience of criticism has been at conferences um, with other scholars. Uh, but whenever I talk about my work at a museum, whenever I give a talk on, you know, your podcast or on, on you know, I've done some work for different national park sites during the, the lockdown, um, I get lots of people saying like, this is, I've been waiting for something that addresses this because this is something that I've experienced with my dad who was a veteran. Or, you know, this is something that I found in my Civil War ancestors' papers. Or, you know, things like that. Um, I found a lot more really positive feedback when I am sort of out facing the public with this, with this scholarship. Um, but I will say <laughs> that is not true when it comes to the, the public history work that I do with my podcast. Mm -hmm. In which um, we, I wouldn't say that we are out and out political, but we don't shy away from topics that are, let's say, controversial. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I have gotten, you know, criticism for being um, too, I don't know, maybe activist is the right word with some of that, that stuff. Um, and when it comes to that, we just sort of roll with it. Uh, because we made a conscious decision when we rebranded in 2017 that we wanted to sort of really uh, lean into the, the political, well, not the political, but into the history that matters, right? The history that's of the moment, the history that people are looking to right now. And when you do that, people are not going to like it, right? Especially when you're a woman and then they like it even less. So um, yeah, I mean, I think that you just have to sort of accept that that's, that's going to come with the territory. But in terms of this work, I really, I have not gotten a lot of public criticism for it. Even uh, from the Chamberlain fan boys, which is interesting because I expected there to be a lot more, you know, disgruntled people saying like, don't talk about, you know, JLC's, you know, penis in this derogatory <laughs> manner. And they all were also very uh, interested in it and, 
that came out like everybody's interested in Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain's penis, but you know, it's an interesting topic. I mean, I have a, I have a class on, um, on, on medicine in the civil war. And of course I have a thing on JLC's penis in it. So, you know, with with, with drawings and everything, with drawings (laughs) and everything. So, you know, nice. And I'll just add, I also haven't gotten a lot of, of hate mail. I haven't published a book yet, so that, that could be part of it. But um, I think in, in cases where, you know, I have been uh, challenged in some of my work by historians of addiction. Like there are a lot, there are some historians of, of addiction that will say, you know, that people in the past could, you know, people before the last few decades couldn't possibly have understood that there was such a thing as addiction, that you could actually be addicted to drugs. And when that happens, I just refer people to the evidence. Like my policy as a historian is that I make evidence-based arguments. And I think the, the evidence that, you know, we present the three of us in our studies is overwhelming that these issues did uh, occur. Uh, and I hope that didn't sound like too, like, cocky, I guess. I don't know. But, but you know, like the evidence is there, right? And that's, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to bring this evidence to light. And I think the evidence in all three of, of our, our topics is really clear and, and sort of like out there that these phenomenon or phenomena did occur. And so anytime somebody is like, no, that can't be real. They didn't recognize addiction, right? I just say, look, read the, read the stuff that I've written yeah. about and you'll see for yourself, right? And I think that is a fantastic place to end anybody uh, who is critical of, of, of anything that any scholar writes, look to the evidence uh, and see what the evidence tells you. Um, I think that's the perfect way to go. That's how I, I function as a historian. I ask the questions first. I go and tell, I go find out what the historical record tells me as far as the answers goes. I don't determine my answers beforehand. Um, that's the wrong way to do it in case anybody's interested. So thank you. Uh, thank you for that. This has been a fascinating uh, conversation and you've all clearly got cool stuff um, in the works. Uh, and we'll see where this, uh, this historiographical shift and this path takes us uh, in the future. I'm looking forward to what's coming out next. So thank you all very much. For thank being you. Here. Thank you for having us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. This has been great. All right, guys. Well, we'll, uh, you know, we'll have you all back on again. This could be a recurring thing. I think it'd be fun. <laughs> <laughs> very well, everybody. All right, see you later, guys.